Hello, and welcome to Standing in the Stream, a podcast for and about creative people. I'm your host, John Lane. Filmmaker Stephen Ballou grew up in an isolated, small South Texas town where he said he had little to do except watch movies and wander off with his own imagination. That imagination would guide him to write and direct his debut feature film, Dig, which won the Narrative Feature Audience Award at the Austin Film Festival in 2010. Since then, Stephen has also been involved with the AFF as a film competition programmer and director of youth education. His new film, The Father, is currently in early stages of pre-production with his independent film production company, Enigmatic Pictures. Stephen, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm really happy to have you on. You're the first filmmaker that I've had a chance to speak with, so thanks for taking time and, and chatting with me today. No problem. I want to get into your um, filmmaking and your creative work and your process to, to working with film, but I always like to start at the beginning of the show by kind of getting a little bit of a background and as I mentioned in the intro, and it's actually something that you and I have in common, is that we both grew up in sort of small Texas towns where, at least for me, watching movies was definitely a way to escape and dream and visit exotic places and see interesting people. What I'm interested in to know maybe about this background section is at what point did you say to yourself, okay, watching films is not enough, I need to make a film? And then when, at what point did that really feel like a possibility, a real possibility for you? Yeah, I'd love to talk about that. It's uh, kind of a big turning point in my life, actually. I, as you said, grew up in a really small town. And, and to kind of give you perspective, let me tell you uh, how small this town is. The population is about 200 people. Okay. Um, and the nearest gas station is about 20, 30 miles away. So there's zero, zero to do in the town, no places to go, no places to hang out not even a gas station. So it is extremely small, extremely rural. And um, most of my family is around there. Um, so I grew up pretty close to my family. And, and I'm, a, I'm an only child. So I didn't have very many brothers and sisters to play with, but I definitely had uh, cousins. And so I, I got along with, with them very well. And I also had um, uh, my own outlets, like my creative outlets to, to kind of wander off with uh, watching films, also doing artwork. I love, I love painting and drawing as well. And I also started writing, but going back to what you stated is sort of like how I knew when I made that transition from watching movies to wanting to make them. Um, it was around eighth grade. I remember my school only went up to eighth grade there because it's so small. My eighth grade class was hmm. the largest class to hit that town and it was 13 kids. <laughs> so <laughs> we didn't have many people to choose from to have friends. And so out of, out of nowhere came this guy, uh, is now my best friend, Gregory Day, um, from Louisiana and we had never seen anybody outside of our community come into our community. And he sort of is the catalyst behind all this because he was really into studying film as an 11 year old. And I'd never really seen somebody that interested and passionate about something before like this, uh, especially at a young age. And we just hit it off because we had everything in common. We loved all the same movies. We loved comic books. We loved drawing and painting and no one else in this small town really got into the arts it was more of you know farming cattle roping that kind of stuff um so immediately that was sort of a huge turning point because we started hanging out every day and then he would show me oh yeah you, 
this is a movie and this is a screenplay. I, I like reading the screenplays before I watch these movies because they are really interesting. And I didn't even know what a screenplay was at age 11, you know. So mm-hmm. that was big for me because then I was like, oh, there's somebody behind the camera and someone behind the story that I'm watching and loving. And so I was like, that's something I would love to do. I thought about that in the back of my head at age 11. And before we knew it, we were talking about writing our own scripts together. We wanted to write our own zombie movies and vampire movies, <laughs> uh, stuff you think about as kids, you know, and, and we really loved the horror genre. So that was sort of the, the turning point for me. And the story took a sad turn because we, we were extremely close and, and best friends. And it was the most intense summer of friendship I've ever had. Like it was like, we hung out every single night and every single day together and we would either stay at my place or at his place and we just watched and analyzed movies. So that was a big turning point for me, my eighth grade year, uh, getting, getting done with school and knowing I was going to have to go to another school after this and travel to another school, uh, which was only about 15, 20 miles away from where I lived. But soon we learned that Greg had to move away again right after that summer. Um, so we, Basically, he left me with this desire to write and make movies, which I thought we were going to do together. And I thought I'd never see him again because he had to go back to Louisiana. So I just stuck with it. After he left, I just he, he kind of left that with me. And I was like, I, I have to do this. And I really didn't tell my parents. and I didn't tell anybody around me. I didn't have any brothers or sisters, like I said. And I just started secretly writing screenplays to myself and planning that eventually I would try to maybe make one of these stories come to life. I didn't know how, um, but I knew that I wanted to. And so as I went into high school, it was a it was a wonderful experience in that I I really met the right people in high school to kind of push me toward the career path I've chosen. And uh, just to throw a couple more names out there that I really respect these two teachers of mine because they were a huge influence on me. Um, my art teacher, Mrs. Harris um, from Three Rivers, and then also um, my other teacher uh, for he taught theater there was uh, Mr. Khan and they literally were the two driving forces behind telling me I need to follow this dream of mine and, and actually make a movie in high school and so I made a movie in high school with with the help of Mr. Khan and some other people and it was my first short and I'd never even this small town had never even really thought about making movies no one heard about making movies a lot of people didn't even know a lot about the process of making movies, but I was studying it, reading books. And then in high school, I made my first short film and that's kind of where it all began. That's a beautiful story, Stephen. It's, that's really a really beautiful story. There's two things in there that, that sort of were touchstones that I want to kind of go back to, uh, that sort of resonated with me. First one is when you said that, that, that time when you realized that there was someone behind the camera, that you were watching someone's sort of uh, vision, you know, come to life. And I think that's a really interesting uh, thing to say because uh, I think a lot of artists uh, hit that point. It's, you know, at some, whatever the discipline. And for me, it was, uh, you know, in music, uh, I realized yeah. that, oh, this Beethoven guy was a real person, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> this wasn't some uh, abstract, you know, thing. It's, it's, he was just a real person or whatever, you know, and the idea that, well, maybe, maybe I could do that, you know, maybe I could make something. And uh, so I think that's a really important sort of touchstone for, for young artists who are, or exploring and, and to come to the realization that they're real people behind these things that movies Definitely. that we watch or music that we listen to, that it's not, um, it doesn't just appear out of thin air. Yeah, definitely. 
and the, and then the other thing, of course, is a sort of a ring, ringing endorsement for arts teachers. <laughs> <laughs> and and certainly, I also had a uh, you know influential teachers in my life uh, that pushed me towards music and and helped me develop those skills. So um, can't say enough positive things about you know. Uh, teaching and finding yeah. finding those mentors in your life that's a really important step. Well, that's a beautiful story. Kind of reminds me of uh, the story Kevin Smith tells about making movies. You know, when he made Clerks, it was a similar kind of thing. Nobody, you know, he just rented the uh, or used the the convenience store after hours or something. You know, and um, yeah. that's how he got started. So, um, I don't want to take up too much time with it, but since you mentioned it. Uh, it might be fun to kind of geek out on some of your favorite films. So what, yeah. what were, I mean, and I'm sure your tastes have changed over the years, but what, what are some of your favorite uh, films or influential films and filmmakers, wherever you want to go with that? Yeah. I mean, it's going to sound silly. I mean, the stuff I, t- the, my, like you said, my tastes have changed, but it's also not, I still love to watch these films. So don't, don't get me wrong. Um, when I say my tastes have changed, but also I've matured in my, in my, what I really want to do as a writer and a, and a director. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I really want to do is tell really meaningful stories, um, stories that, that move people, but also don't forget the aspect of why movies were invented in a way is to entertain. Mm-hmm. So I find, I find I've gone through this sort of, I'll tell you my favorite influences as a kid, but just keep in mind that I've changed to where now I'm trying to incorporate into my own storytelling the elements of the things that I loved with those movies as a kid, but also keeping to mind my, my goal as a storyteller um, and filmmaker to move people. So um, when I started off, it was all horror, of course. I love horror. It's one of my favorite genres and still is today. Um, but, you know, I haven't really made a horror film and I haven't written one yet. So it's kind of a weird uh, love uh, relationship that I have with, with that genre. Um, but I was in love with, like, um, I mean, everything from, like, Bram Stoker's Dracula um, I was a huge fan of the Evil Dead um, and Army of Darkness. Mm-hmm. Um, I was a huge fan of Alien, Predator, all those kind of classics. I grew up in the 80s, of course, and, yep. and early 90s. So this is kind of da- you know dating me there. Um, I wasn't born in like you know 70s or so to. And now after I've grown up, I've I've some of my influential horror films are like Rosemary's Baby, um, The Wicker Man. Um, we've got you know stuff like Eyes Without a Face. Uh, it's a very, very, you know, foreign classic film that's really, really psychological horror. Um, but there's just so many. I, I can't really – I don't have these directors. Like a lot of people will say like Scorsese and, and or, you know, Akira Kurosawa. But I actually just kind of like every genre. And I just have movies that resonate with me today that still resonated with me when I was a kid. Um, but I am a huge sci-fi horror geek Um, so I just have like walls and walls of sci-fi posters and images and, and, and horror posters and images in my, in my house. My wife has to put up with it. Um, (laughs) I have, I have, um, one of my, (laughs) this is a really, really, uh, I'm admitting this on a podcast, so I hope this doesn't get out there, but one of, uh, you know, I'm kind of, uh, I'm, I'm a huge Ninja Turtle fan and you would, you would think like that movie is like such a childish movie, but I really still enjoy that film and it's the first film and it's funny because what I'm doing now is a sort of a sci-fi fantasy story this next film I'm writing and a lot of people are like trying to like see it. they they say it's it feels like an older movie um and a lot of it has to do with like my love for those those 
films that use practical effects mm. that did it really well back in the 80s and early 90s. Yeah. And so these movies all had their influence on me. I am a nerd at heart, but I also really like I went through a stage in college and I still love these films is the neorealist movement from Italy and the French New Wave films were a huge influence on me as a writer. So today I have a lot of realism in my writing because of those those movements in film. Uh, but it's weird because you compare that with the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and you're like, why does this guy like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles so much? But he loves uh, 400 Blows. Like, you know, those are my two, you know, two of my top films. I'm like, yeah, Turtles doesn't really fit in there, but it does, you know, because <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm not throwing away the stuff that made me fall in love with movies. You know, even if it, people look at it and think of it as, that's not a film, that's a movie, or, you know, try to be a little bit more pretentious about things. I'm not a pretentious filmmaker. I just love movies and what they do for people. Yeah. And Turtles did a lot for me. I, I'm not going to lie. I just, that movie was my movie growing up. And so it still is to this day. And and its influence is bleeding into my current work, fun, funny as it sounds, even though my current script is a very serious script and it's a very emotional script, um, a lot of those films had an influence on the what's going to happen in the in the film and and the the story it's, that's being told in it. Yeah, well, it makes perfect sense, and I I have to also confess of being a huge Ninja Turtle fan. I mean, I'm I'm the same generation <laughs> as you. Okay, I grew up mm-hmm. in the '80s and watching all of those films, and um, I completely wore out my VHS copy of <laughs> the Ninja yeah. Turtles movie. I think it was 1990, wasn't it? Or yeah, 89? it was 90. 90. It was okay. 90. Yeah. Yeah, uh, and I even remember in. Um, I guess it was in middle school. We had the the Ninja Turtle pies. I don't know if you got these in your part of Texas. Uh, my wife know. is my wife is from New Mexico. She had never heard of these things, but they're they're basically fried pies, and on the inside was this green goo, like the slime. Oh, you know, oh, they were the coolest thing. You know, I mean, <laughs> yeah, everybody, I yeah, I would have loved it. Yeah. yeah, everybody had to have those at my school. So uh, yeah, so you're in good company here. It's perfectly yeah. fine. I've always felt like. With some people, when when they started talking, you know, friends that I have that are real big film fans, that there's sort of films that we talk about that maybe we've seen a time or two, and then there's films that we love that we'll see over and over and over and over again, you know, Mm -hmm. and... Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that's a value judgment there. You know, I don't think you have to preface that by saying, well, you know, this isn't a, a, you know, prestige film, but we, I think we all know what those films are, right? I mean, we sort of have an idea for that. So, but I think it's interesting that you're sort of blending those two worlds of sort of art house, independent, you know, character driven sort of idea for, for a film, but also the sort of spectacle, uh, not spectacle maybe, but the, the entertainment uh, aspect of some of these other films that we've been talking about. And, And what I understand about what you're trying to do is sort of, blend those together and have some exactly some no, elements it's exa- of both. it's exactly what i'm doing and i'm trying to do and I, and i to a degree i did it with with dig and i was i was very proud of that accomplishment i i mixed a little bit of supernatural horror into a pretty much a straightforward drama that was uh, you know an emotional story about a guy losing his father unexpectedly in life and having to kind of revisit his hometown where the remaining uh members of his family live and him kind of facing a dark past that he ran away from that ties directly to his father um, and sort of their falling out and his father passing away suddenly has sort of left this man with a lot of guilt. And there's a lot of a slow trickle of supernatural elements that sort of just drip their way into the story towards the end of the film. Hmm. And so what I tried to do is I tried to bring that element in, in a very subtle manner 
to where it would be an interesting story for those that maybe don't really like horror films, but they really like dramas. But then also for the horror fans to be like, oh, this is a really character-driven story that has an element that I really love in it because I love horror. So that was my plan with with Dig. And I, I was somewhat successful with it. I was very pleased with my with my first debut feature. I love you, Miko. Love you too, Popo. Was Dad wearing all that stuff when you found him? The clothes in the truck. Why would he be wearing all that if he was in bed? Your dad left you everything. The uh, house, land. Grandma, whose dog is this? That was your mother's. Yeah, he was a nice looking dog. You know what happened to him? He got hit by a truck, if I recall correctly. there yesterday. I think Dad knew her. Hey, Manuel, it's Lacey. Your grandson's been involved in an incident. Now that I'm getting older, I'm realizing I, I, I definitely was more in, into the art house uh, cinema when I made Dig, but I loved horror, so I tried to bring it in horror into that. Now I'm kind of doing a little bit of a um, a switch on this new film with the father, the sci-fi film I was telling you about. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm kind of now making it, I'm looking more on the entertaining factor now, and it, but I'm adding a little art house into it. It's kind of a weird, I'm playing with, with my own style and uh, I'm excited for it because it's going to be more the stuff that you'd want to watch over and over again. Yeah. Where Dig, Dig is like what you're talking about, where you watch and you're like, that was a, that was a good film. I, I appreciated that and it actually moved me but I'm not going to play it over and over again. You know what I mean? It's something that you watch and you get it and you're like, okay, that was, that was a moving picture and um, I'll remember it. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I wanted to make a movie. Now my next film, I was like, I want to make one of one of those ones like, like turtles or, or like um, army of darkness that you just love to watch and laugh at and enjoy. Um, and not necessarily laugh at, I'm sorry. Uh, my film's very serious, but I want to, have something that someone would want to see over and over again, something like an ET, something like a, like a Jurassic Park, but but blend art house into that in a way to where it, it kind of just teeters on that edge of that. Yeah. And it's not solely, solely pure entertainment and it's not solely art house either. So it's been a delicate, you know, balance for me to try to figure out a way to, to work these in and make them work together. But the script, I mean, it takes me a while to write a script with dig. It took me three years with a father. I started it four years ago and I'm still kind of tweaking it. So it's a, it's a process to make something like this happen for me. I'm very picky and very critical of my writing and I do not settle for stuff that just doesn't work. And if it, you know, if it, if I have something in the film and it just feels like it's not true or realistic, um, or if a character's actions aren't aren't really what they would do, I just kind of have to rework the whole script sometimes. Yeah. So 
um, I spent a long time on the story mostly. And then from there, it's, I find the movie making process easy. (laughs) It's the, it's the getting the story right part that, that kills me and takes me years to just be able to accept my own script as being ready. So I've read that, you know, sort of tying into what you were talking about there, that some filmmakers are really great at understanding kind of the the technology of filmmaking and all of the sort of tech that goes into it. You know, a director like James Cameron comes to mind or, you know, I don't know, I'm sure you could mention several others that they really yeah. have a they really have a, a very strong vision. And but they understand the technology about lenses and cameras and sound and special effects and all those other things. But then there are filmmakers who are basically just storytellers that, that they, mm-hmm. they don't they sort of maybe rely more on their a technical sort of team to help with yeah. all of that stuff. And their their vision is really the the, the storytelling. So. I feel like that's probably a sliding scale. It's not like you're one or the other, of course. But yeah. where do you feel like for you, I mean, did you learn the technical stuff? I mean, obviously you had to learn that yeah. later. Uh, but sort of where do you fall in that spectrum? I am somewhat in the middle. I, I definitely lean more toward the storyteller um, as opposed to the technical savvy person in film. I'm not good with technology, and I've never been. So as you can tell, we had trouble getting Skype going here for this <laughs> podcast. Um but um, I, I grew up in a small town, too, where technology wasn't that important. And so I love to, I love to surround myself with the people that love that and, and work really well in their different uh, departments. And then I like to learn from them. I, I like to like kind of watch and do that. But I'm not an expert in every department of film. I am and I should be the expert of my story. So I focus on that. And I know how to direct actors and I work with actors but I also have a very clear vision as well of like the style of the cinematography and the and the looks and the certain scenes I know I want to play out in a one take because it's going to have a huge impact on the realism of that scene um so I'm really really good with designing camera movement camera work and I've, I've spent a lot of time developing that just from watching films and also just making notes of my own personal styles and and preferences and I also just have a general understanding of how the lens can help portray your story um and you shouldn't you shouldn't just completely as a writer and a director you shouldn't just focus on the story you should also really work on the visual um movement of your story and how it can really aid your story Mm -hmm. so those are the two things i feel i'm i'm strong at but i definitely don't know how to load a camera a film with camera or i don't even know what they're doing nowadays with uh, i don't know how you're shooting pictures on digital because my first film was on film and I'm going to be shooting my second one on film. So if you handed me a modern camera, I'd probably be like having to go find some kid to show me how to, how to work it. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Well, um, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because yeah. uh, that that sort of is an interesting uh, thing. I saw the film recently. What was it called? Side by Side, maybe? the uh, with Yeah. Keanu with Reeves Keanu hosting. Reeves. Yeah. yeah. So I watched mm-hmm. that recently and everyone was talking about digital film and that this is the f- you know future of filmmaking and uh, yeah. Yet you've decided to use real film, a 16 millimeter, did you say? Or Yeah, 16 millimeter. Yeah, so mm-hmm. maybe you can talk a little bit about that decision and what led you to to want to shoot on film. Yeah, um, it's 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 been a quite a long time ago, so sorry if I have to kind of wander with my own thoughts and try to remember everything that happened and that led to it. I grew up, we both, as we both know, we grew up in the digital age. We didn't really have film as an that wasn't one of the options that we really thought about using for, for making movies. You know, um, I grew up in the digital age and it was basically progressing to where digital was going to take over everything. So 
for me, I had no idea that I would ever want to shoot anything on film at all. I had actually had laughed at people that were trying to use it like secretly <laughs> don't, you know what I mean? Not, not, it was just me like saying, why are they using these old mediums when technology is so much more advanced now? Why are they doing this? Um, and I'm so glad that I ended up on a path that put me working with film. I don't know how truly it happened because honestly, it's, it's one of those decisions that I made and I don't even remember why and how I came to making it. And I can partially tell you it was part of the reason was um, I find it beautiful. The medium is beautiful. And I'm not going to, I mean, you can, you can tell when you watch a film that was shot on film and, and especially if it's an older film that was shot really well, it just has a, a, an organic quality to it. It just feels, it feels like it's a part of time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whereas the digital digital films, I mean, they're, they're getting so crisp and clear now. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. But to me, there's sort of like a, it's almost like a barrier between me and the story. I want to feel a little bit more raw and real and, and connected to the story. And for some reason, I can notice that when it's on film. And I don't know, it's not like I'm saying, oh, I'm some superhuman. I can tell when it's film and when it's digital. But it's just a feeling I get when I watch movies that are that are older sometimes or from modern day film is shot on 16 millimeter or even 35. I can sometimes catch it. And I'm like, oh, this feels really good. Let me look it up. And sure enough, it is film. Now they are getting to the point where they are matching the look of film with digital filters and, and, and technology and such. But there's still something there that I just don't like about that. Um, and I'm, I can't tell you what, like fully why, but I can go into the details about something that I think a lot of these documentaries and a lot of filmmakers don't really touch on that is really important about film. And it is that when you are of any artist, you, for instance, when you're a musician, mm -hmm. um, working on a piece, if you had everything, every instrument you can think of every possibility at your fingertips, I think that the challenge to do something really great is sort of lost because you can do anything you want. Whereas when you, when you're creating and you're being a creative person, most artists, as you know, struggle financially or struggle with some other aspect of their life because they're having to give up a lot to just focus on their art. And when that happens, it's, it spurs creativity because you're limited with your options. So when you're limited, you have to be very creative with what you have to make something great out of it. Right. And that is the aspect of film that I love so much is that you are limited with film. It's such a, a demanding medium that you have to know what you're doing with it. And you don't get the privilege of take after take after take, unless you're a studio, of course, that's paying millions of dollars for it. But if you're an independent filmmaker and you're using film, every scene is precious. Every take is precious. So as a director, as an actor, as a set direct, set decorator, you're all going to be on top of your game because you know that this is an independent production and money, uh, film costs a lot of money. And so you're not just going to kind of, you know, sort of just do half your job or something. Not saying that people do that on digital productions. I'm not saying that at all. But it, there is a sense of urgency and a sense of importance when you're shooting on something that costs a lot more money. And so film adds a, a whole nother level of that to your to your production if you're an independent filmmaker for sure and so that's what i noticed when i shot my first feature i became before with all the other shorts i did i was not a real director i wasn't i was simply telling people what to do on camera that's it 
when I shot on film, I realized this guy has to actually be going through the emotions of losing his dad and dealing with this guilt. And I have to go sit with this actor. This was based partly on some stuff, some personal stuff that my first film with that I had my, with my own parents and my own father and with my own family. Hmm. And so I had gone through some emotional stuff. So I said, you know what, let's go. And I'm, I'm going to have to talk to this guy because I don't, I only have two takes. And if he doesn't deliver the emotions and the, and the expressions that, you know, that I'm, I'm hoping this character can deliver and he can't deliver on his performance, then this film is shot. It's not worth it. You know, it's not good. So I would sit down and I'd be, we'd be crying together before each take. Cause I'd open up and tell him about stuff that I dealt with in, and then we'd be, you know, in tears, ho- holding, hugging and, and talking about things. Hmm. And then he'd go and shoot the scene and it was so moving. And I was like, because I knew how important it was for me as a director, I was like, not only is this, sto- should this story be important, but also I've got a hundred dollars running through the, running through the can right now. And if he gets it wrong, I'm not going to have enough to make the rest of my movie. So there was that sense of urgency, that sense of importance with film that a lot of, I think a lot of people don't talk about. They talk about the look of it a lot, but they need to also realize that there is a professional attitude that comes with film because you have to be, you yeah. know, yeah. whereas digital, I mean, there's, I mean, yeah, you can say like, oh, well, you can't just shoot all day because then you'll waste your whole day with digital, but there's still not that sense of like, I mean, you could hit record and stop anytime you want. You don't have to reload the films. You know, there's a lot of aspects to film that make it, it it's almost like a ritual. You have to like, respect it you know what i mean mm-hmm. um, no totally and it's not that i think oh i'm so much better of a filmmaker because i shoot on film it's just i appreciate what it does for me as a director and so i try to encourage other people that might be on the fence about it to try it because it definitely was a huge uh improvement to my craft to do it it was like the best move for me as a filmmaker to do that and from now on i i, I respect it so much that i'd like to shoot every film from for the rest of my career on film yeah well, I think there are a lot of people uh, behind you on that one. And, mm-hmm. and you know, to echo some of the things that you said, uh, I've always maintained that limitation breeds creativity. And that anytime mm-hmm. if I ran up against a roadblock, it was normally because of the blank page, you know, and, 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 yeah. and, and sort of limitless possibilities. If as soon as you limit things down, um, you, you, you can start to play with things and, and uh, you know, just possibilities open up. It, it sort of unlocks something. But yeah. there can definitely be the sort of gridlock of looking at a blank canvas or a blank page or whatever the field. I mean, yeah. I think it goes across disciplines, you know, that idea. It so, does, yeah. And for you, it, film opened up that for you. And so that's, that's great. Uh, I think that's a really great thing. You were talking about the sort of the the way that film looks you know and i i yeah. actually had a similar experience with with analog sound uh, yeah you know and and lps and vinyl are making sort of a resurgence now uh but there's something to that about the you were talking about the ritual of loading the film in the camera and all of that there's also a ritual to taking a, a piece of a vinyl record out of its record sleeve and looking at the you know huge artwork and all the notes and things and you know you have to put the physical object on the turntable and there's all this whole you know sort of ritual that goes into it and you know of course I grew up with vinyl as a kid uh had lots of records and the little 45s and all of that um, mm-hmm. And recently, I had to write a review of a vinyl record, and it it forced me to you know I realized well gosh I don't, I don't even have a record player anymore you know I had to go to the <laughs> library and sort of sit in there and but it was just great I was so thankful to have had that experience again and it's made me sort of 
um, you know, turn back to, to vinyl and be interested in that again and that whole yeah, experience. So I, I have, think that relates to what you were talking about there. And there is something tactile, right, to, to images that are shot on film. Something about that analog is, is, is really more, more human in some ways. It is. And I feel like, and, and again, I am not, I'm not the technical person that can explain all these things to, to anybody correctly, but I had a conversation with a guy. This is going to sound really funny. It was when I was in that, in that moment when I I moved to Austin, when I was wanting to make my first film and, um, and this is kind of silly. I don't, I don't, I don't feel the same way anymore, but I got rejected from UT, um, grad school. And, Right then and there, that fueled me. I was like, I had worked really hard. I made a lot of short films, and I had gotten on, you know, one of my early short films in college got on, on was featured and actually was shown on PBS. And it was a lot of work that I went through to get, you know, kind of a resume built up. And then when I got a rejection letter from the place I had always wanted to attend as a kid, since I was 11 years old, I wanted to go to UT. It was like, it, to me, it was like a slap in the face that I wasn't good enough. And it, that's not true. You know what I mean? That's not true at all. Right. So I don't want to, UT is a wonderful school, and I have lots of, my crew and my my close team that I work with are from UT, and I know they're a wonderful school. But I I'm glad that I got the rejection letter because it fueled me to, to write and direct Dig, while you know they were in there doing their 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 studies and and putting their money toward that. I put I put money toward my first feature, and it was a it was it was one of the best experiences I've could have done. And but while I was in that critical stage where I was saying this is going to be my debut film, the question came up film or digital and I was like digital why would I do film well I randomly had a conversation sorry this is coming back to me now after we've talked a while um there was a guy that I went I went to go film like a commercial or something and be on the set of this commercial to kind of get more experience here in Austin and on the way back we stopped at a Whataburger and he started telling me oh you need to shoot it on film and he's like he drew out on a Whataburger napkin the way our, he was, he was into science and I, I don't, I'm not into science, but he drew out our eye, a human eye. And he talked about how, how light, how we, how basically our eyes work mechanically almost, you know, mm. um, and how it actually absorbs the light and how it refracts it and all that business. He somehow, he made me aware that film does that digital doesn't. And I don't know how. Sorry, I'm putting this out there. Maybe someone out there can can respond to this podcast. But I thought it was brilliant. And that was actually one of the turning points for me to start looking into film. Because I wanted this story. One of the main goals for my film was to be as organic and raw as possible, as real as I could make it. Because I knew I was bringing in supernatural elements. And I thought, if you have such a real story and then you throw in a supernatural element, I said, that's going to creep a lot of people out. Because I've always wanted to see a movie that was so realistic but then when something unnatural came about in it, that it would get under your skin. And so when I heard that film was more, you connected to it more, this guy was really into film. I said, you know what, let me look into it. And that's when I found a cinematographer that I was really connected with. And he's like, I want to shoot this on film. And I was like, okay, let's, let's actually toy with that idea. And luckily he knew a rep at Kodak that I truly love. Michael Brown, if you're out there, I love you to death. Uh, thank you for helping us so much with our first feature. He's also helping us with The Father as well. So kudos to, to Kodak. I got to give some some shout outs there because we could not have done it without Kodak's help. Kodak really supports independent film. And everyone out there, if you're an independent filmmaker going to make a film, I just I, I 
I ask that you go and support them as best as you can because I, I want them around and I don't want them to go away. <laughs> hmm. So uh, what what is happening with film stock? I mean, what I understand is that from that film that I watched uh, is that kind of they've they've stopped producing film. Is that is that right? No, they. Um, I mean, I haven't looked at it this week, but <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I just recently about a, maybe almost almost a year ago, maybe about seven months ago to eight months ago. I spoke on a panel um, about promoting the use of film and independent film uh, for Kodak here in Austin. And I met Michael. I hadn't seen, I haven't met Michael in like seven years. I only dealt with him on the phone. It was such a good reunion to see him and meet him and talk with him. And he is the one that asked me to speak on the panel for, for Kodak. Mm -hmm. And they were announcing that they were doing new stocks. Okay. It was really, really amazing stuff they're doing. So apparently again, I am the storyteller and the director. I'm not the technical person, but let me try to explain what they're doing. And this is really cool. So filmmakers can get an insider you know, tip to what, what is now available, I think, at Kodak already. They're making – and I may be completely backwards on this, so really sorry for if I'm backwards on this. But there's perforations on the film you know, where it, where it runs through the, the, uh, the wheel and the yes. motor, yes. Uh, and, and that's what carries it through it. Well, they've made a – they've designed a new film somehow – it's it's got different perforations to where you get more footage on the same feet of film. So basically, um, before if you got a hundred foot can, which is about two hundred bucks, or no, it's about a hundred bucks for a hundred foot can, and that gets shoots about two minutes worth of film. So that now can get double the amount of footage. So you get four minutes, I think. This is what I'm. This is what I I, I heard at the panel, and I'm excited about it because you get double the the almost double the length of your of your footage with the same amount of feet that I don't know how they're doing it, but they've, they've been working on it, which is really cool. Cause then that, that, that helps out independent filmmakers a lot because it's going to reduce the costs of film for a lot of people. And I'm, I can't wait to kind of see if we are able to use that. I'm hoping it, it it'll work with the production I'm going to be doing. We're going to be doing super 16 millimeter this on this next production. Hmm. So I'm hoping it works out. Well, you know, I guess that's, you just brought up the point, uh, why I think probably a lot of people are attracted to digital. I mean, there are a lot of reasons, I suppose, the control, control being one of them, I suppose. But the other thing is just the cost. I mean, you can, if you have a hard drive with however many, a terabyte or something, I mean, you can put hours and hours and hours of footage. You don't have this, the, you know, you don't have that sort of monetary restriction on you yeah uh, because that is that is pretty expensive when we're talking about uh you know independent film so well uh, that actually that sort of brings up an interesting point did you want to respond to that i did actually um i want to make it clear too that i'm not just pointing out this is film to me has its place so like you need to when you when you're when you're looking at film not every film should be shot on film at all it's just the certain you know certain people would, would their stories lend themselves really well to the medium and the medium lends itself to their f- stories mm-hmm. my stories they it, it's like the perfect medium for me you know but for not for every filmmaker so i'm not saying everybody should be shooting on film i actually totally agree that digital is almost like a, a platform for a majority of films out there but then if you're doing stuff that you really like certain certain filmmakers and storytellers want to have a raw personal connection and uh, an emotional story that will connect with their audience. Some people just do entertaining films, and that's there's nothing wrong with those at all. And some horror films don't need that realistic element because it is supposed to be surreal and fantasy, you know, yeah. and not real. So there's di- digital is a perfect platform for 
you know, a lot of things out there, almost a majority of things out there, I think. But there's then there's a few uh, projects and, 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 and artists that it's a perfect medium for. And so I just kind of wanted to point out the pros of, of film and the cons of it for those that are, are considering it. To me, the pros uh, way, way outdo the, the cons, unless, of course, your story is not one that needs to be doesn't need to feel like what I've been explaining. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Some yeah. films don't have to have that. It doesn't really need that. Sometimes it's just a, a comedy, you know, without that sort of emotional core. Sometimes it's a horror film that's just straight up nonstop action horror. You know, that stuff doesn't need to be shot on film unless the filmmaker just wants to challenge themselves and do something really great with it. You know, yeah. Uh, if I ever write a story that fits in the digital platform, I'm going to shoot it on the digital platform. Right. Uh, right. But for me, everything I'm writing and everything I see myself writing it just fits so well into the medium of film. Well, I've always heard that the hardest thing about making a film is raising the money. We were talking about now that this is what it's a good transition point. We were talking about the expense of film. Well, that's not the only expense of making a film. And and I've read time and again and I heard interviews with filmmakers that they say, man, the hardest thing about it is raising the money to make your film. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've been successful with this um, with this new project on getting some Kickstarter campaigns yeah. going, and uh, so can you talk a little bit about your approach to funding and how maybe you can relate it to your current work or the, the your previous feature? Uh, however, yeah. you want to go with that. Being completely honest, I'm terrible at it. Um, I am good at Kickstarters, which I don't. Uh, I I think it's just because I'm I'm very personable and I like to make all of my Kickstarters a very very personal. Uh, plea to everyone I know like hey I want to get this done and if you can help I'd really appreciate it type thing and I have methods of 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 making those work but for funding an entire feature I'm not I'm not the skilled expert on that I have now gotten a producer that is is good at that and I'm hoping that we'll get funded for the father we're not funded yet at all I just got a kickstarter off the ground for some some early pre-visualization stuff with dig it was literally and I'll be completely honest with everyone out there it was literally family and friends. Like I had to do that because you're an unknown writer director. You've got to either, if you have like amazing short film work, then there's a, there's definitely a chance that you can get a producer and get some investors interested in your projects. You, there's, there's no right way to do it. There's not a single right way to do it with me being a no, being a no name and having no names in my film and wanting to shoot on film. It just, it would I don't know how I would have found investment for it. That's just not my skill set. Now, if I would have had a producer, perhaps he could have figured out ways to do it. But I was my own producer for for Dig, uh, so that didn't really, you know. Sadly, it was mostly just I had a, a really awesome support group and an awesome. I have an amazing family and I love my family, and they all pitched in to make this happen. Hmm. Um, so that was literally it. Uh, I had no outside investment for, for Dig. But Dig was ridiculously cheap. Uh, I cannot say how much. <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was as if my parents would have bought me a used car, basically, as a, as a graduation gift. Uh-huh. Uh, and I'm talking about a beat-up, junked used car. <laughs> so I can't say the number. But, yeah, I mean, it, it was ridiculous what we made Dig for. And it, I wanted to also inspire people out there I could still make dig right now for that same amount. It's not hard. It's not difficult. It actually was fun, and the challenge was uh, was really great for me and my crew and my and my cast. And I am sad that my next film is getting a bigger budget because I really like working with challenges and 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 difficulty. You know, 
placed on me as a director to be like, I have to overcome this. And it feels so good to be that creative. Whereas I, I'm not giving myself a lot of money for this next film, but it's definitely a ginormous step up from Dig um, yeah. because it deals with special effects and science fiction. So we have to create a world and we have to create a world of characters and they have to look real and they're all going to be practical. So that's going to be a very time consuming and money consuming process. So that's kind of where the money's going. Uh, we are shooting on film again. So film is more expensive than digital, but you have to also look at this with digital. You can, you have to buy hard drives. You have to also rent the cameras out with film. You can find people that have the cameras that don't really get much rental out of them and you can get a good deal out of them. Mm. Uh, my cinematographer owns his own cameras, so it's really just kind of giving him a, a fee for letting us use it. So it's really awesome. In film, you don't have to pay a lot for the gear uh, most of the time. And the only thing you're really paying for is the stock and then the processing. Processing, you got to really consider because um, they digitize it so you can edit it on a computer and all that mm -hmm. stuff. Yeah. So those are all the things you need to consider in that, in that world. But to be honest, you have almost a similar amount of costs and different things that you have to do with digital productions as well. Uh, the only thing that you, you have more freedom with is kind of limitless takes to a degree. Yeah, yeah. Well, um, so in, in sort of thinking about putting together a feature film, I mean, you live in Austin, right? Or, or mm -hmm. you're based in yeah. Austin. Yeah. Um, and are, are you finding that that's a, a good community and supportive for you making films? Have you ever thought about, you know, I mean, I have no idea, like, you know, I assume that there is a, a significant film scene in Austin, but, you know, what I hear about is, of course, L.A., well, LA is good if you like the movies that are coming out of LA. <laughs> Aha! Excellent, uh, excellent. I, I love the films coming out of Austin, though. You know, like the guys here, the teams here, I mean, you've got like, you know, Hellion from Cat Candler, and you've got um, some amazing, I mean, sorry, there's many here. I'm just going blank right now. But I'm friends, you know, I'm friends with all these people here, and we're, we're a, a close-knit community. And sadly, I've sort of kind of fallen into the, I've kind of, I've kind of drifted into the shadows right now with this next feature because I've been out of the loop with all these people that are going out there and making a lot of really good films right now. I'm still friends with them. We still have conversations, but I've been, I've, I haven't been productive. And so the community here is very supportive though. I've sort of hidden in the shadows because I don't, I don't want people to be like, you know, I'm kind of trying to keep some of this secret. Um, and it's been like, you know, eight years since I made dig, which is a really long time to take between making your next film. Mm -hmm. But my goal was to do something really a lot bigger than my first film. Mm -hmm. So a lot of people will do those kind of like smaller steps. You know, you make a short, then you make a feature, then you make another feature and you build up. I'm like making my first debut film was a feature. And now I'm making a ginormous sci-fi fantasy epic on film. You know what I mean? So I'm not like taking a small step so that I, I, I'm forgiving myself for taking that much time. A lot of people have said you're taking too long. You're, you know, this is not good for your career type stuff, hmm. but I really don't care. I'm just doing what I love and I'm going to keep doing what I do. And the community here supports you no matter what. Austin has got an amazing pool of talent and creative people. And I love being here. I would never want to move to LA hmm. or be there. I have friends that just left and I wish them the best and they know who they are, but that's just the, that's who they are. They want to write for, you know, different things. Yeah. I, I love just telling my own personal stories and you don't have to be in LA to do that. I wouldn't get any more work in LA than I am here because I'm having to create my own work here and I'd have to do the same over there. Hmm. I like it here because all my stories are set in Texas. So, uh, I grew up around this area and I love 
I love exposing all of the region we come from to people that might not really see a true side of it. And most of the time you see it in Westerns or in, you know, modern day Western stuff. There's always ranches, cattle. There's always that stuff. This is just, just the, the parts of the world that I've seen that aren't always what you see in movies when you see Texas stuff. Yeah. And I'm enjoy I'm enjoying showcasing it and, and being able to write stories about characters that are in that, in this, in this region. Yeah. Are you a, are you a Richard Linklater fan? Yeah. I love, yeah. I love his work. Yeah, I mean, I th- he's, he's a great, he's a great filmmaker. I felt like, uh, there's a one scene in Bernie where the guy sort of describes Texas and all the different sort of parts of Texas. Do you remember that part in Bernie? I'm where... trying to recall it. I don't recall. What, what well, is it? Well, it's, it's a, it's a really great moment because everybody that grows up in Texas, like, I mean, that nails it exactly. <laughs> you know, he said something about, uh, well, you've got East Texas as the Piney Woods, and then you've got all those uh, rich snobs up in Dallas, and then you've got <laughs> Houston as, you know, uh, petroleum land, and then you've got, you know, and he just kind of goes yeah. off on all these different things. It talks about Texas as being sort of five different states or something. And yeah. it's just, yeah. it's exactly how I've always thought of Texas, you know? Mm-hmm. And um, anyway, I thought that, I just, you mentioned that, and that made me think of that moment in that uh, in that film, but... So that's really interesting. So let's dig. So this first movie, it's, uh, you know, I've seen the trailer, but how do I, <laughs> how do I see the movie? Are you looking for, you, it's you, your, you're looking yeah. for distribution now, right? So how you, do we get yeah. these films out of Austin and, and, you know, into people's uh, homes and how can we see them? I am struggling with that as well myself. And I want, uh, I want f- filmmakers out there are, are really getting a handle of it. I thankfully have met a producer that's really, really working at, at helping get dig out there. It is such an old film that it's harder to sell because it's not fresh off, fresh off the plate. You know, it was a weird time for dig because when dig was finished and we got into festivals, I, of course, like I mentioned, I had only the money I got from family and friends to produce this movie, which is not how, not how most people do their films, you know? But I was passionate and I wanted to get it off the ground and I was very pleased with the way we got it there. But the bad thing about it is I didn't have a like a true, you know, truly experienced producer because I was doing most of it myself to plan out that I needed to have a lot of money saved to get the film out there and exposed. And then distribution happens when you get that sort of exposure. All I had was I entered three or four festivals. I got into like three of them (laughs) and then I won one and I got awards at some other ones, too. And so I did good, but I ran out of money. Couldn't mm. even send it anywhere else. Mm. So that killed a lot of what I had going. And it's sad for a film that was, you know, it, it probably could have been more well-received all over, you know? Yeah. And that is something I want to caution filmmakers that when you're making your first films, I was 22 at the time. It's not something you think about. You think, oh, I make a great movie and then people will still want to see it. You know, yeah. But you have to be able to afford to get it places to be seen. Um, I would think you just enter, but the festival fees are really high. I mean, they average about fifty dollars a festival now. So if you enter four festivals, you you spent two hundred dollars right there. You know, hmm. um, it, it was it was really difficult to to watch Dig just sort of have that small success that it had, and then not be able to do anything with it. So I just I just want to give that warning out there to filmmakers because now that's where I'm at now. Now that I'm a more experienced filmmaker and I know this stuff and I have people with me that are wanting to help me make this possible to get out there, distribution companies are like, oh, this is eight-year-old film. How do we promote it? You know what I mean? Yeah. So my, my goal is to get it on an online platform, hoping it can be available through Amazon, maybe even Netflix, um, 
that sort of stuff. It's a great avenue for these films. Mm -hmm. If you have an independent film, that's a blessing that has occurred in the past decade um, that we now have this sort of new platform, not just theaters to go to with our films. Cause dig is not a theater film. I'm there's no way that film should play. It, I, it looks beautiful in theaters, but it's not one that people are going to be flocking to to see. This has got a niche audience and it's a story that um, is powerful and moving. And it's only going to be really those people that like those kind of stories that want to see it. So it's hard. It is a harder sell. It doesn't have any name actors, but online platforms can still make money off of things like that, especially if they play on the angles of the horror and the supernatural that are in it. So now we're just working on those angles, trying to make sure we can find the right home for it. And it's still been a process. And I apologize to all the Kickstarter backers out there because we're still working on it. But the film is completed. It's all packaged and ready to go. And we're just going to be trying to seek out the distribution platform that's right for it. And then we're hoping soon, if nothing else, we can always just distributed ourselves yeah that's the, that's the beauty of online distribution yeah so we're going to we're going to go one route or the other we're just waiting to see what the best option is cool well i i heard a, i think it was quentin tarantino one time in an interview and he said you know the problem with uh one of the problems with the industry is that there there aren't young people kids growing up saying i want to be a film distributor <laughs> you know <laughs> and they're saying yeah. you know i want to be an actor or i want to be a director or whatever they're they're not going into that side of things and so i wonder if just uh if there aren't enough film distributing uh you know uh, avenues for people to have their films uh, uh distributed what do you think mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, there are a lot of places. I mean, there's a lot of distribution okay. options out there. The hard part is, is that the knowledge is, is, uh, I, I didn't go to film. I didn't go to a great film school and that was just not an aspect we learned. We learned about the craft. We learned about storytelling. We learned about the art of filmmaking, but never once did we learn about distribution. And I think that's such a vital aspect of, if you want to make a career out of filmmaking, you have to know it or you have to have someone on your team that knows it like the back of their hand because everything you do is going to play into that. Uh, Unless you just want to make it and show your friends and you're happy with that. Um, But that's really not going to get you anywhere and you're going to be spending a lot of money on things that are just going to be shown at your local barbecues and stuff like that. You know, So um, it is an avenue people should start looking into. There are millions of online distributors out there and the hard part is just figuring out they need a lot of stuff like they need deliverables. And, and when you do a film that's, you know, like my film is eight years old, I didn't have all these things created for distribution. So you have to go back and almost, almost re-edit your movies just to be able to be on online platforms. Hmm. So it's a, it's a tedious process. So when you're getting, when you're making your first film, if anybody out there is listening, you want to make sure you get all that information and, and have someone on your team that's making sure all those steps are being followed. So when it comes down to finishing your movie and you're out there, that it's going to be an easy way to just give it off to whoever wants to distribute it. That, and I'm not saying it's as easy as that, but it's it's basically you want to have a package of all your all your things that they need as a distributor. Because most studio films, they all have that built into their plan. Independent films don't. Um, they should, but they don't. Well, let's uh, make a transition now and talk about this new uh, film that you've mentioned it several times, The Father, uh, that's in, you said, sort of the early stages of pre-production. Can you talk a little bit about that film? And, and specifically, I've noticed that you, you've you said uh, about the film that you want to use more practical effects, that it, you're going to have more special effects in this film, yeah. uh, but but that you're interested in sort of the practical side of uh, effects, uh, movie effects. So can you talk a little bit about that film? And Yeah, um, just general 
I guess logline for the for the story is just a it, it's a story of uh, of an extraterrestrial father and son that are shipwrecked in a creek bed in South Texas, and they are struggling to find out where they are and figure out how they're going to get back home. Meanwhile, on a ranch that this creek cuts through, um, another father and son, um, Hispanic family, are dealing with issues of their own, and their stories sort of parallel each other, and ultimately their two stories come to a head. There's a lot more to it. I don't want to give away a lot right now uh, because the script still is in development and also our, our pre-visualizations and concepts are in development right now. But the goal is to tell a story that would feel like it came, you know, for me, I love the stories that came out of the 80s and the early 90s that were sci-fi, uh, practical effects movies. Um, I mean, you know, E.T. being a big one, stuff like that. And I felt like CGI sort of given us too, like to me, has given us so much freedom that the movies are a lot more about the spectacle now and the effects than they are about the story. And so I'm trying to do a story that is really heavily influenced by father and son relationship stories. And I'm I'm really diving into father son relationships with this film and all the dynamics that make up different types of father son relationships. This isn't all about like one type of father son relationship. We have three or four, we have th three to four different father-son stories that are uh, playing at once in this film, and they all are very different, uh, but they all kind of connect in the end and kind of speak a truth, I think, about what fathers and sons really are to one another, and that's kind of what the story's about, and that's, so far, it's tentatively called The Father. A lot of people, I don't know if that's going to be the final title, but it's the working title at the moment. Okay. Um, one of the, I listened to another podcast called Film Spotting. I don't know if you've ever listened to that show, but I, I quite, I quite like that show. And yeah. one of the things that they, their, this week's show was, um, well, I, I'm not sure when this show will come out. So I guess if you're looking back at Film Spotting, it's the, uh, top five streaming science fiction films, uh, is part of the, what they're reviewing, uh, on this particular episode at any rate. What they're talking about is kind of what we were just talking about, practical effects versus digital effects. <clears throat> One of the things they said was uh, he referenced, uh, the, the host referenced a Roger Ebert review of the original King Kong, 1933. Mm -hmm. And they were talking about, you know, special effects today uh, with all the digital things. Sometimes it's even hard to tell when there's been an effect. It looks so real. Everything is very real. Yeah, And when you go back and look at a film like King Kong, uh, it doesn't look real. It looks mm -hmm. like an effect, you know, and so that's sometimes seen or criticized or that, that seems old or, you know, this kind of idea. But what Roger Ebert said I thought was really great, and I'm going to read this short sentence to you and kind of get your response. Yeah. Um, he's comparing, uh, he's talking about Jurassic Park here. He says, in Jurassic Park, you're looking more or less at a real dinosaur. In King Kong, you were looking at an idea of a dinosaur created by hand by technicians who are working with their imaginations. I don't know if Ebert was referencing. It's kind of it's kind of weird because the first Jurassic Park. Sorry, I'm going all nerd on you here. No. Um, about eighty percent of that film is real. They only use CGI on a certain couple scenes. So I don't know if he was referencing because they were made more out of clay and and other things. I think in the in the original uh, King Kong, but in in Jurassic Park there were life size built animatronic dinosaurs which were huge right um, but there true. are 
Yeah, so I don't know if he meant. I'm trying to see what he might have meant with I, that quote. I'm thinking maybe he's talking about the when the T Rex is chasing the. Uh, oh yeah. You know that that yeah. more or less looks like a real dinosaur that's running and and in King Kong when they had the yeah. dinosaurs in King Kong, you know, their claymation or something, and their you yeah know, or uh, stop yeah. motion, right? Um, yeah. He goes on to, in that same paragraph. He says, when Kong battles the large flesh-eating dinosaur in the first battle scene, there's a moment when he forces its jaws apart and the bones crack and the blood drips from the gaping throat and something <clears throat> immediate, something immediate happens that is hard to duplicate on any computer. So I think he's just talking about the, t again, sort of it comes yeah. back to the idea of tactile, right? There's something immediate and yes, tactile yeah. about that kind of effects versus the the more digital very clean realistic looking effect anyway, yeah i just thought I, that was sort of interesting. no no that's good and, and that's part of the reason i want to stick with i'm i'm giving myself and my team a challenge because i that's just who i am personally like um, you know just speaking this hour with you you kind of could tell i like to i like to limit myself so i become more creative um especially you know that i did that with film it's the same transition with this with the special effects uh, when I when I knew I wanted to when I when I wrote this story, um, I didn't plan on it being all practical. But as I started to get ready and, and think about actually making this film, I was telling myself, you know what, I, I I'm really kind of not liking where digital is going these days um, as far as uh, CGI and special effects. Even though people you know they love it, you know a lot of people do love it. They it is extremely it can be extremely realistic looking, but what I'm noticing is there's sort of a, a disconnect also, just how it is with digital and film, where you know we have become so aware of, of when something is a digital effect. Mm -hmm. Like take, for instance, you know, when you're watching The Hobbit, um, if you even watched it, <laughs> um, <laughs> when you see that fire-breathing dragon going across the screen and flying out of that cave and coming towards the town, and all I... All I my mind just automatically, and I'm not doing this on purpose because I'm not like a cynic or anything, but my mind just goes, I just know it's, I know it's an effect. Right. I know it's a CG. I know it's, I know it's a digital rendering that they've created in a, in a computer and yeah, it looks good. But I think all of us now have become accustomed to being like everything we see, we know it was created in the computer. And I think that does something to our, our perception of the story and, and how we're involved with the story. I'm not, I'm not, saying this is everybody. But for me, I started to analyze. I'm like, you know what? I'm now thinking about that. Like, I don't really look, I don't look at the effects anymore. I'm not looking and studying and like being like, Oh, is that real? Is that man? How did they do that? You know what I mean? With this movie, I'm like, I have, you know, two characters that are going to be from out of this world. And I was like, I want to go back to people guessing again and being like what what is that is that you know is that real is that it looks really you know i want them to be like it looks really good yeah. i don't want it to look fake so that's where we're having that challenge of being like we really got to push ourselves because these are two main characters that are on screen about 80 percent of the film Oof. that are all going to be wearing practical effects that don't look they don't look anything like humans so it's going to be a difficult sell especially with this an emotional story where you have to see their eyes and see their expressions so much yeah because there's such a there's such a, a powerful father-son story that and that you're going to have to sell all through those those faces i love what they what they've developed with you know from from lord of the rings and peter jackson developing the 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 technology to put on andy circus's face to become Gollum. that stuff looks really good i'm not gonna lie 
the, the, the facial expressions, they've nailed all that, you know, they've done it, but I know that it's generated and it, it bothers me for some reason. Yeah. I'm not saying it bothers everybody, but something about it is like, I know that that thing is not really there. You know what I mean? And so when I see this movie with these two Ray raw real characters that I've created that are not human, I don't want them to not be there. They need to be there in the scene, in the elements, you know, in that Creek bed with the mesquite trees growing over them and the stuff falling. And, and if there's fire, I want them to feel the heat. I don't want them to be some generated image feeling that, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, um, this is where I come from with my, my desire to do this in a practical manner. And it's not to be like, Oh, I want to be cool. I want to be hip. I want to do something that's uh, a throwback. You know what I mean? Yeah. But it's just some desire of mine to be like, I want to challenge myself and I want to make this film feel like something I grew up with and make something that people will take home and be like, I want to watch this over and over again because these were really cool effects and the story is really moving and I want to show everybody I know this movie. That's kind of the goal for this next one. Yeah. I don't know if it's going to happen, but that's the goal. Well, <laughs> uh, well, I wish you the best of luck on that. I Well, I, I would reference a, a film from uh, 1978, the, the Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978, mm-hmm. full of all kinds of practical effects. Yeah. Um, but one of the most memorable, and this one resonates me to this day. The first time I saw this film, it freaked me out. Uh, and you know, the film is not really scary in the sense it's sort of more psychologically disturbing than it is scary. Yeah. Um, that there's this one moment, maybe, I don't know if you've seen that movie in a while, but oh, I love it. I love okay. It, yeah. oh, there, there's this one moment when there's a, uh, that, you know, the, uh, aliens have been, um, Re- reproducing these, you know, uh, stand-in, these body snatcher yeah. uh, people. And so anyway, there's this dog that runs up towards the camera, you know, and so if you see it from a distance coming, you're like, oh, it's a dog. But clearly something yeah. is not quite right with this dog. And as it approaches yeah. and it gets closer uh, to the camera, you see that it's got a human face. And, mm-hmm. it, and it cuts just as it gets up close enough yeah. to realize what it is, you know. And that moment just yeah. totally sends chills down my spine, you know? Yeah, and that was yeah. totally a dog wearing a mask, you know? Yeah, I yeah. mean, but it worked so well. Yeah. So I think if, you know, if you can, um, if you can pull off that sort of level of realism with, with the practical things and you're, you're really onto something there, I, I think then I, that'll be real interesting to see, um, how that works out for you. I hope, I hope it works for you and, and best wishes on that. Thank you. Okay, we're just about out of time here, so I always like to sort of conclude the episode by getting some kind of uh, advice or, you know, anything that you'd like to say for people who are out there who are trying to live and sustain a, a creative life, be they filmmakers or what have you, but what, what advice do you have for, for those people? Man, I have tons of different things, different elements and different things I've learned throughout the, my, my, my short career so far. I haven't had a long one yet, but I mean, just, it, it depends on, on who you are, but I, I find that the only way for me to, to maintain my creative lifestyle is to surround myself with the people that support that. You know, um, if you're ever working on something with someone and they aren't, you can tell when somebody's not when they're dragging you down or they're not really being helped. So I would recommend to anybody out there is you got to build that family of people that support you and not saying, Oh, they're constantly like sending you nice letters saying you're doing such a great job, but it's more of like they're there and they respect what you're doing 
and I've built that team and I really appreciate my team out there. You guys know who you are. They allow me to be creative and they trust me, you know, and they respect me. And anytime you get someone that doesn't trust you or respect you as an artist, um, drop them, you know, don't, 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 don't carry them with you because they're only going to drag you down. Um, and I've had, I've had experiences like that and you have to be able to say not in a mean way, but you have to just move on and, and surround yourself with people that, that do respect you as an artist and that understand who you are and support you. So if you, if you build that team and that, that, that group, no matter what you're doing, if you're, if you're an actual painter, an artist, if you're a musician, you know, it's the same, same goes for any art is you really, really can't do it alone. You know, um, you can produce the things alone, but to be honest, if you're going to maintain that lifestyle, it's so much more worth it to have somebody have a team behind you and supporting you and, and keeping you going because money is not always going to come from what you do. Uh, I have yet to make money making films, but I'm getting there. And it's because I have that team behind me that support me. And I'll just give you an example. Like the guy I took a chance on to be my first assistant camera uh, on dig, he'd never done it before, but he told me he knew how to do film. And the first assistant camera, for instance, has to, has to load every film reel in there. And if he messes up, then he costs us $500 every time he messes up. I took a chance on one guy because I, I, I felt he supported me and believed in me, whereas the other people I interviewed seemed very pretentious and they kind of like knew their stuff. But they didn't feel like they fit with me personally and where I was at as a filmmaker. That guy now is, owns his own rental company and he's donating all his gear and lighting to my next production. So it's like those are the people you surround yourself with and you make those friends and you make those – almost like family commitments with these people and they are there for life, you know, and they support your art. So when you're an artist, find those people and help them out when they need help and they'll help you out when you need help. Terrific advice. Steven, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And with that, we conclude this episode of Standing in the Stream, Conversations with Creatives. Again, I'm your host, John Lane. You can follow me on Twitter at that John Lane. You can find the show links and show notes on my website, john-lane.com, and follow the show on Facebook. Simply search for Standing in the Stream. Thanks to Danny Clay for our theme music. You can find him online at dclaymusic.com. I'll be back next time for more conversations with creatives. Thanks for listening. <laughs>